This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. During the pandemic, people living with disabilities have been at higher risks of serious illness or death from COVID-19. But some have felt forgotten or left behind as the virus continues to disrupt their daily routines and access to critical care. For almost a year now, billions in Medicare, Medicaid funds have been on hold, and they desperately need this federal money for programs and services they rely on. Joining us now to discuss this and more is Lauren Weber, Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. And also here is Amber Smock, Director of Advocacy at Access Living. Amber, glad you could join us. Yeah, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Lauren, bring us up to speed here. Where are these funds coming from and, and what are they meant to be used for? Absolutely. So uh, about a year ago at this point, the American Rescue Act plan, the Rescue Plan Act was signed into law by President Joe Biden. And that basically sent what amounts to about $25 billion to the states, which uh, essentially would be spread out over the next two years until 2024 for Medicaid services of home care and home health services. Um, and these services are primarily accessed by the folks in the uh, disability community and the elderly. So this is, this is a lot of money, right? I mean, this is the kind of money that makes a huge difference to, to go to these states, especially as you and I are very well aware, you know, when home health care workers are, are absolutely, you know, slammed, they're, they're not making a lot of money, they found other jobs in the pandemic, and they've been fleeing, they've been going to other jobs, or they've been hired by other places, leaving members of the disability community behind. Yeah. So this huge burst of money was supposed to solve a lot of these problems. Now, that was a year ago. We are a year in, and a lot of these home health care programs have not seen the funding yet because of a lot of red tape at both the state and federal level. So to be clear, all states have gotten partial approval for these funds, which allows them to access some of the money. But some states are reluctant to do that before they get full approval. What's behind the holdup there? That's exactly right. Uh, so what's behind the holdup is what a lot of sources called, you know, said to me was red tape. It's navigating, you know, legislators and states. It's navigating different approval deadlines for Medicaid. And I just want to be clear that that red tape has consequences. You know, as we talk to folks on the ground, you know, if you have to move your family member out of a home health care service because all the workers quit and, and no longer you take care of them, that could mean that they have to go to a nursing home or an institution. I mean, so this red tape really, you know, while understandable bureaucracy absolutely is a thing, this is, an you know, a massive amount of money. It has real-world consequences to have at least a year-long delay, if not longer. And what's the status in Illinois? So Illinois actually did receive uh, what's called conditional funding, which is really full approval, uh, at the very beginning of February. So they should be starting to to spend more of this money and, and get more of it out. But, I mean, like I said, you know, technically the money was available or should have been more available in the months ahead of this. Well, Amber, let's bring you in here. Tell us what you make of this situation. Okay. Well, I, this is Amber speaking. Of course, I agree with what is being said about the challenges of deadline, the challenges of preparing very detailed material that the federal government is asking for. But what happens in these kinds of instances is that, you know, the feds don't want to just give money out. 
They want to make sure that you're not duplicating programs. They want to make sure that different dollars aren't going to places where they're not supposed to go. And so there's a lot of checks and balances within the bureaucracy itself, but it takes time. But the problem is that that doesn't make any difference for somebody who needs help today. And, you know, as somebody who is personally providing care right now uh, to a family member, what is happening is they're being told that they there is nobody available. They can't do anything about it, and you're just going to have to figure it out. And we, we were talking about everything from, you know, washing dishes and doing laundry to changing diapers, bathing, feeding. And anybody who provides care knows that these are very intensive tasks. So I'm glad to know that the state of Illinois has got, you know, conditional approval. However, we needed this money 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, as we mentioned, Amber, this delay is causing real consequences. How can we transform how care is provided to the disability community so that these necessary services aren't put on hold? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing uh, that I would say is certainly the money has to come in, but we can't just have short-term solutions. We really need short-term infusions of cash. Yes, there is a real crisis short-term. Yes. But long-term, we really need to be thinking about who provides care and how to make sure that they can make a good living doing it. A lot of people who provide care don't have health insurance. You know, they don't have, that's not automatically provided by some kind of job. Um, a lot of people may not be making a ton of money, as you mentioned earlier. You know, these jobs need to be attractive to people who are willing to do it. And one thing that the state of Illinois is actively doing right now is in the legislature, there is a bill called Senate Bill 3132. Mm -hmm. And Senate Bill 3132 would remove a programmatic barrier for one of the waiver services and um, what is called the Home Services Program. And it would allow spouses to provide care for their disabled, you know, partner. And so that actually has a lot of support in the disability community because the reality is spouses do provide that support. Yeah. But they have not been able to be compensated. They have not been able to receive any kind of benefit. A lot of people give up their jobs and go on Medicaid themselves in order to be their partner's caregiver. So the spouse... Uh, allowance would be transformational for many people. There are a lot of things that the state of Illinois is doing to try to build the right infrastructure, but they need to know that the, that the public is behind them, and yeah. they need to have capacity to create and develop those programs. Lauren, what have you found in your reporting about this? Because right? it's it's a it's a problem. It's difficult for folks to find personal assistance right now. Yeah, I think Amber hit the nail on the head at so many of her points. And I want to go back to what she said about the importance of sustainable infrastructure. You know, when you and I hear $25 billion, I mean, that just sounds like an insane amount of cash. But if you divide that up by 50 states and it all goes away in two years, how can you sustainably raise the salaries of these folks that are, are giving such important care to the disabled community? How can you sustainably make sure that they stay in those jobs? How can you compete when... You can make, you know, some of these jobs pay minimum wage. You can make a lot more money doing a lot of other things that are a lot less difficult. So how do you sustain, grow, maintain, and continue this workforce? And I think that's, you know, one of my sources said to me, this amount of money and this amount of time is like a nanosecond in yeah. government spending. And and that's that's true. I mean, it, it really is. And so it is, it's just 
quite alarming as you see protests across the country from caregivers saying we're not getting paid enough we can't stay in this field and then you have families who are left to pick up the pieces and i think what we're seeing right now is a lot of picking up the pieces you uh you recently wrote about how medical innovations during the pandemic like telemedicine um how that's left people with disabilities behind briefly tell us what you meant there yeah absolutely i mean we think about normal things that a lot of folks do every day, right? You, you drive to the testing clinic, right? You, you take a rapid test at home. Well, if you are blind or low vision, you can't see the results of the rapid test, and you don't have a car to drive to the appointment. Um, several deaf uh, patients that I talked to ha- struggled with uh, telemedicine appointments during the pandemic. Either the provider that they went to did not have captioning, did not speak slowly enough to allow for lip reading or did not, you know, have an interpretive service available. A lot of medical professionals, I think it's something like 35% of them, do not know what their responsibilities are to uh, folks that are disabled, what they are responsible for doing under the ADA. And during the pandemic, a lot of these innovations, while fantastic, you know, trying to get society back on track, did not take into account a variety of needs of people that are in the United States. And You know, what we're seeing, too, is especially as there is this push for technology at home. You know, there's a lot of at-home tests, right, rapid tests for COVID. There's also a lot of at-home colon cancer screening tests now. There's this big push to, you know, to do more medicine at home. Well, some folks with disabilities cannot do that medicine at home. They can't read the results or it's not accessible to them. And that, in fact, ends up leaving them behind. Amber, talk to us about how accessibility has looked for you, have you faced any hurdles in accessing healthcare or, or services during the pandemic? No, sure. Well, I can tell you for sure that I myself have experienced an issue with my primary care doctor being completely confused when I requested that there be captioning on a medical appointment. But the reality is that, you know, as Lauren said, this is illegal. The Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, these uh, civil rights laws basically say that at the state and the federal level, you have the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare providers have a legal responsibility to make sure that this is provided. Now, at the root of this is truly two things. One is a failure to understand that high quality Wi-Fi or internet access speed is essential. You yeah. cannot provide sign language interpretation without this because people's hands and faces move so quickly that they blur. And a blurry screen means no communication. So Wi-Fi access is critical. The second thing is that you there is not yet true federal standards related to internet accessibility because it's such an emerging and developing field develops rapidly, et cetera. There is a global standard called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. But Seriously, like that that's not like a federal that's not a federal law. Yeah. And so there's a standard, but it's not quite it doesn't have quite the enforcement ability that we need to do. So blind advocates, deaf advocates have been speaking up very loudly about the need to have federal standards on uh, digital accessibility because you know what? This is starting to become the number one topic of lawsuits related to disability accessibility. So we really need to get on top of this. So I just want to say that at a personal level, I've been impacted by lack of accessibility. And then at a a bigger level, we have 
certain uh, areas of policy work to do and make sure that this is going to happen. You know, you can't always just rely on, you know, the kindness of people's heart. Back in the days when people were fighting for the ADA, you knew you couldn't get a uh, set of stairs to turn into a ramp just by loving it and being kind. That wasn't going to happen. You had to put things in place. And I also want to say every single aspect of this is absolutely worse for black and brown communities, for immigrant communities, anybody that has like, multiple experiences that will you know, not jive with mainstream community, right? So there are a lot of reasons why people aren't accessing things and it's worse if you are a Latino immigrant, black woman, you know, what yeah. have you. But, um, you know, we need to do this. Yeah, no, this is uh, very interesting. Now we're, we're almost out of time. Lauren, any other stories on your radar right now that you can share? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think sadly, as as Amber pointed out, there's a lot of ground to be covered. There's on so this. much more. I mean, every yeah. day we're seeing, you know, inaccessibility manifest itself in different forms. So definitely doing some more digging on on the variety of ways. And I, I think, as Amber pointed out too, the pandemic has just highlighted something that's been an issue for 20 plus. I mean, for for, for decades. This is not this is not new. It's just become so much more clear when we've all lived through this universal experience of the pandemic. To, it's, it's easier for people to understand why this is so problematic now and why these things should change going forward. That's Lauren Weber of Kaiser Health News and Amber Smock from Access Living. Lauren and Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.